I think all of us know that things are speeding up in the world, events are happening, that they are exciting, and many of the news analysts, famous news analysts, admit that there are more vast changes in the society than have ever taken place in hundreds of years, just one thing after the other. So it certainly shows the end of this age is near. It really does. And that's exciting to me after been preaching these things for about 63 years to see them speed up to the degree they are. But brethren, as the end approaches, we know that Satan's going to attack. God shows us that tribute people of God are going to have a great deal of persecution. And also we're going to have Satan attack us. God describes a massive attack by Satan in Revelation chapter 12 where he fights God, he's cast back down to the earth, and he's going to cause trouble. The people on earth are going to suffer as never before. We're not having that yet, but we need to be close to God, and we need to be ready for that kind of thing, and understand what's ahead, and really learn to put our full trust in Christ as the living head of God's church, and our living head, and the one that we walk with, talk with, personally know, and have faith and trust in him and in his leadership. Every few years, I hear from some of our men on the West Coast and elsewhere it's happening, some back in the Midwest, but every few years Satan comes around stirring up people to try to argue about counting Pentecost or counting the Passover or they talk about the sacred names or something like that. They managed to get upset about something and say, and it seems like it goes in cycles. A few years will go by, then the same thing will pop up that we discussed with Mr. Armstrong, and sometimes even back then the whole Council of Elders, and thought it was all settled. But people get mixed up on these things, and we do need to have strong leadership in God's church and strong understanding of these things to keep our balance. Because Satan is going to come at us with all kinds of things to think about and get upset about, believe me. Back in Colossians chapter 2, if you turn there with me in your Bibles, Colossians chapter 2 in your New Testament, here he's talking about how you're not to be overthrown with vain philosophy and the traditions of men. And it talks about Christ being the main one that's the Godhead bodily showing God and were circumcised with him and the circumcision made without hands, buried with him in baptism. This is chapter 2, verse 12, in which you also were raised through with Christ through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, notice who he's writing to here. He's writing to Gentiles. Every indication is in the Bible itself and in history that the brethren in Colossae were mainly, overwhelmingly, in fact, Gentiles. Basically, they did not know about the Sabbath before they came in God's church. They did not know about the holy days. And it was only through God's church they would have understood that. But you being dead and your trespasses and the uncircumcision. So they were not a circumcised church. They were Gentiles the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses. God forgave us our sins, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, or as it says in the margin, the note of guilt, and sometimes it says other things like that, the note of indebtedness or note of guilt, which was against us. That was our sins, the record of our sins nailed to the cross. God never nailed his own Ten Commandments to the cross. That's insane. 
Would God give the Ten Commandments with great power than have someone nail them to the cross? Of course not. This was the record of our sins, the note of indebtedness or note or certificate of debt or note of guilt. The record of our sins, which was contrary to us, were the Ten Commandments contrary to us, telling us how to love our neighbor and love ourselves and love God? No. He has taken it out of the way, the record of our sins, nailing it to his cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, these demons who are in charge of various aspects of this world, he made a public spectacle of, of them triumphing over the minute. He showed that he was God. He was resurrected from the dead. And they went around in a sense gladly laughing and almost hollering at one another. He is risen. He is risen. It showed that he was God. They could not do away with him. Therefore, let no one judge you. And they were a Gentile church in eating or drinking, as it is more properly translated, or regarding a festival. What festival? Or new moon or Sabbaths. These were obviously the way it's worded. God's Sabbaths which are a shadow of things to come. The weekly Sabbath, as we know, and some of you new brethren maybe don't know, we need to explain it to everyone, and I know that you brethren here know the vast majority of brethren are hearing this will not be here today, but we be around the world. So hello to you brethren down in Johannesburg and Cape Town and out in Auckland, in, in New Zealand, and over in Australia and all the other places around the world. They're hearing this a few weeks from now. But don't let anyone judge you, a Gentile church, and how you keep God's Sabbaths and holy days. The weekly Sabbath coming every seventh day is a type of the millennium. The 7,000 year period, a time of rest from sin, is definitely a type of that. And of course, the annual holy days picture step by step, various aspects of the plan of God. And so they are a shadow of things to come. But the body, uh, or the substance, it says, is of Christ. And the Greek word here, brethren, in this verse 17, look it up yourself, is soma, S-O-M, as in Mary, S-O-M-A. Now that same word exactly is used back in this same book, here in verse 18 of chapter 1 it talks about Christ being the head of the church he is the head of the body the church who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in all things he have may have preeminence the Greek word is body it means the basic physical structure so it talks about that being, of course, applied to God's church. We are the, the physical structure that God is using today. When Christ was on earth, he had his own physical body. He does not have a physical body today. He works through us. We are his body. So don't let any substance or something like that judge you, but the body of Christ. And when you understand it, it makes sense. The Bible does, is not translated correctly here. It's talking about the body of Christ. Who judges you? The body of Christ. Who leads the body of Christ? The ministry, as we'll see as we go through this chapter, this whole subject. The ministry leads the body. And so the church 
makes decisions as to how we keep. We don't change the holy days, but we make decisions about how, when they're held and where they're held. And we make decisions about what we can eat or not eat or if we're going to have snacks or not have snacks or all kinds of things to do with the body and with the church of God and how we observe these holy days. So don't let any man judge you but the body, the structure, the body of Christ, which is the church of God. And so that's an important thing to understand in this passage. The body of Christ does have that authority, and they are given that authority by God. What is the mind of God on all these things about Christ's body and this whole topic? Luke 4, 4, I'll just refer to it. Most of you know that. Man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus Christ said, but by every word of God. And as I tell you continually, please study this book. This is the main thing you should study. I want you to study our literature, and that's fine, but study the Bible a lot more. Go to the source. Look up things occasionally, because as Mr. Winnale said, the, the sermon, the booklets and articles are simply sermons in print. But go to the source. Go to the source, the Bible, and prove it to yourself. If we're teaching the truth, it's right here in the Bible, and you can prove it. So you want to study and really saturate your mind with this so you know these things. It is the mind of God, the mind of God about all these topics. Turn also, if you would, back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 in your New Testament here, where Jesus Christ speaks of very, very powerful things. Jesus said in chapter 6, verse 54 of John, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You're not immortal yet, but you have the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is eternal life, has eternal life. You're not spirit yet, though. He says, I will raise him up at the last day. So you're not spirit yet. You have the Holy Spirit in you. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And when you read this whole passage carefully, it becomes very clear. He's talking about literally drinking in of his word, his message, his whole character. If you eat of Christ and drink of Christ by simply drinking in of and feeding on Christ through Bible study, meditation and prayer and fasting and walking with God, then Christ lives in you. He lives in you and you eat and drink of Jesus Christ. As the living Father sent me, verse 57, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. He who feeds on Christ, who feeds on this book, will know the mind of God about every aspect of Christian living, and he will know God's mind about this. So we really need to understand this whole topic of how God guides his church, and I hope we can get that straight today, perhaps a little bit more than we might have in the past. These things come back from time to time, people questioning the church, questioning the leadership, questioning doctrines in the church that we thought were long established, but I hope all of you, brethren, can really want to understand it and fully be part of it. In Hebrews 13, verse 8, 
Hebrews 13, 8, a memorized scripture, most of you know. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Back in Malachi 3, 6, God says, I change not. Yes, he magnified the law. Yes, the rituals are done away, but the principles of them carry on. Christ does not change his basic approach to church government. He does not change his basic approach to all kinds of things throughout the Bible. It's basically the same as you will see as we go through it. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1 now. Genesis chapter 1. And I think most of you know this because I keep referring to it again. But as Mr. Armstrong did, I like to go back to the very beginning once in a while. That's where the foundation is. Genesis 1 shows how God created every animal, every creature, everything. And then in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image. Every creature was made according to his kind. They had the cow kind, the the dog kind, the horse kind, the monkey kind, were created after God's image and according to his kind. And let them have dominion. What is the first thing he said after God is making it his image? Were to have rule. From the very beginning, God made mankind to have rule, dominion over everything, rule over everything, over the fish, the birds, the cattle. The lions are a lot stronger than we are. If we eat a mountain lion out in the wild, we're pretty afraid. But overall, the lions don't put us in cages. We put them in cages and get big, big cranes to put them, lift them up, put them on a ship and bring them all the way over here from Africa because we're made in God's image and in the way he has a certain mind. We have, to a limited extent, creative imagination, mind power to make us be able to rule over the lions and the tigers and the elephants and the wild animals and so on. Because we are in charge. We are made in God's image and we're made to have dominion. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, verse 27, male and female, he created them. The modern scientists are trying to do away with that by having us get operations and become its, where we won't be a male or a female. That's against everything God Almighty ever intended. I think most of you know that. But the modern rotten society is playing that stuff up like it's all interesting. It's been so much fun to try to change around everything God made. That is the mind of Satan. Then God blessed them, verse 28, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. So once again, the mankind was to have dominion. From the very beginning, we were created to rule. And we do need to understand how important that is that we're made like God, made to have rule from the beginning. Now let's go to something we often refer to, but I want to talk about this aspect a lot today. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 6 in your New Testament here. And you'll notice in verse 1, the Apostle Paul tells the Christians, Dare any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. You're to go before the church of God when you have a disagreement about how to count the Passover 
how to observe the Sabbath, how to keep the holy days, all kinds of things, that even if you had personal disputes were to come there also. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Aren't you able to be judges? You're training to be judges forever in God's kingdom. No God's churches to learn that today. All of you in this room are to learn that. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? We're going to judge the angelic hosts throughout all eternity if we're in God's family. How much more of the things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint, or some translations have it, it's applied, why do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church? Why do you go to outsiders who don't even know the truth? Why would you have them try to be your judges? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? So we are to learn to be wise judges. God has intended that men know that and that men are able to make judgments in the church of God. Notice back in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, brethren, and verse 18, Jesus said to Peter and the apostles, I say to you, Peter, he's talking to you directly, you are Petros, a small stone, and upon this rock, a different Greek word, Petra, P-E-T-R-A, a massive rock cliff or mountain, this massive rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the gates of the grave. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. God's church is to do that. We're commanded by God to do that. We have to make binding decisions as to how to observe the holy days, what days they're to be observed upon and all this kind of thing, whether we should eat or not eat or how much and so on. So whatever you bind on earth shall be loosed. Whatever you loose on earth shall be bound. God says, I will back you up. I'm going to guide you, of course, as many scriptures show. He was to guide them in the judgment. Then over here in chapter 18, he says, verse 15, Matthew 18, 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, now this is not just a judgment about holy days, this is a judgment about some personal offense, people are causing trouble. John starts flirting and carrying on with Joe's wife, and Joe's upset, what does he do? He could go punch John in the nose, but the right Christian thing to do is to go face to face with him and say, you're getting too friendly, back off, that's my wife. And if he won't back off, you take one or two leading brethren with you, preferably two, so in the mouth of two or three witnesses it'll be established, whatever the offense is. So he says you're to do that, to have two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Do you go announce it? Do you ask Mr. McNair, can I make the announcement that Joe has bothered me? No, you don't do that. You tell it to the leadership of the church, and all the way through the Bible, that's in fact what they did do. Tell it to the church. They are to make the judgment. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and tax collector. You don't have regular fellowship with him. He's not in the church anymore. He's deliberately left the church in his actions. 
Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, Jesus Christ said, talking to his ministry, his leaders, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I say to you, verse 19, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them or by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, you see, to make some judgment to be used by God, it doesn't mean whenever two or three brethren get together at a movie or a skating rink that he's with them in some special way. He's with us all the time, but he's with especially those leaders who would be together in judgment. So he says, I'll be with them, whatever two or three together together in my name, in Christ's authority, to do, make these judgments. I am there in the midst of them. So Christ guides this as we shall see and as God did all the way through the Bible. And we do need to really understand that. And brethren, we do need to understand God's government. The true government of God is a blessing. And if we don't understand that and are not practicing that, we are not preparing ourselves for the kingdom of God. We really aren't. What's the whole message that our tithes and offerings are going to do? To preach the gospel of the kingdom of God and the true name of Jesus Christ. And then to feed the flock with that understanding. The kingdom of God, as Mr. Armstrong said again and again and again and again, kingdom means government. That's what it means. I came back several years from the United Kingdom of Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. The government, the government of Queen Elizabeth, is the government that runs this whole area there over the British Isles. So a kingdom is a government, and we're preparing for a real government on this earth. We've got to understand government, and we understand it better by practicing and by properly understanding and practicing it in God's church today. So he tells us to do that there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Why would you have outsiders judge matters? You're to learn to, gov to govern yourselves and to have the leadership of God right in the church. He says here, it's, it's God's government that matters. God's form of church government is a blessing. I say God's form because some people say they don't need any right form of government. But frankly, they don't have the correct understanding even of the gospel of the kingdom if they don't do that. I'm going to show that to you as we go along. What are some of the blessings of God's government? If you're taking notes, write this down. Here are three blessings of the true government of God. Number one, it teaches us to trust in Christ. I've been trying to urge you to learn to put your faith and trust in Christ. Christ is real. And as we'll see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and elsewhere, Christ is right now the living head of the church of God. Do you believe that? Believe Paul knew what he said? That God inspired that in his Bible? You even believe it or don't. Christ is the head of the church. Government teaches you to trust in Christ to guide that. Secondly, it keeps the church unified. Without government, people wander off and they let some outsider come in or someone from some other organization and start upsetting people. I know Mr. Armstrong sent me right after the autumn, at least, after I graduated from college up to Portland, Oregon. We had a wonderful elder up there, but he was a little older and he was a cartoonist named Basil Wolverton. He said, Mr. Wolverton is having a hard time because some ex-Adventists and ex-Pentecostal and ex-Church of God ministers are coming around 
picking off some of the brethren. So I want you to go there and pinch hit, he said. He was trying to lure me into the ministry because I'd always told him I didn't want to be a minister. But he said, you pinch hit for Basil Wolverton. So I did for about seven months as a local minister in Portland, Oregon. And I made sure those things didn't happen. I had to stop their mouths if someone came around and take the lead in the right way. The right way to keep God's church together. It protects people, wolves coming in to pick off the sheep. You need a leader. You need a shepherd. And God means that and has that in his, his Bible and is part of his government. A third blessing of God's government, it prepares all of us to learn how to rule forever. Because many of you men are coming along as leaders in the spokesman club or other activities, acting deacons or deacons. We can't live, lay hands on and give a title to everybody who serves. Then we wouldn't have any laymen left because <laughs> we hope everyone will serve. So we want to teach people leadership. And as you cooperate with the newer people to serve them and then older deacons or older deaconesses to cooperate with them and try to submit yourself to one another in the fear of God, submit to their guidance, you learn the whole pattern of God's government. God's government is based on love. It's there to serve. We have practiced servant leadership, and that's a vital thing, as I've explained in whole sermons. Servant leadership. You lead by serving. You lead by giving, by helping people to have their lives work better, to have God's church work better, to cause everything to work better. That is to be the attitude. Servant leadership. So that's the point that God wants us to learn how to do now. But that's a great blessing of God's kind of government. It's not politicking. Never in God's church or in the Bible does God talk about men getting together and making speeches and trying to have a voting to see who's going to be the minister or who's going to be the next elder. Never, never, ever, not one single solitary time in the Bible did that ever happen. God does not do that. I'll digress a little bit, but I know that some uh, churches in the past have tried to take this example some of those who split off from Mr. Armstrong, that they don't need any government. They tried to say that back here in Acts chapter 6, where they appointed these uh, deacons, that that was voting. That was one example they tried to use when they first started out. I don't know if they still do it or not, but they used that many, many times. It talks about in Acts chapter 6, there was murmuring about the which uh, people were getting the service. And so the... Twelve disciples summoned the multitude, saying, It's not good for us to leave the word of God and serve tables. Who took the lead? Who started this? Did it start from the bottom? No, the need came from the bottom. But the ones who solved the problem were the apostles. The leaders said, Here's what we want done. You choose out from among you. They had hundreds of brethren in the, and maybe actually thousands in the Jerusalem area by that time. It grew very rapidly. So they asked the other leaders, leading men and women, no doubt, who among you, they got input, they got counsel. Proverbs eleven fourteen. without counsel, the people are disappointed. Things don't work out right. Get counsel and multitude of counsel, their safety. That's another part of right government, counsel. They were getting input. Choose out from among you seven men or seek out Seven men have good reputation. You see, you're to recommend them to us. They must have discussed it. 
Maybe they were given a list of 10 or 15, and then by discussing it with these people that knew about them and among themselves, they chose seven of that multitude that were given to them, no doubt, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may, we who is we, not the church as a whole, but the apostles, whom we may appoint. He didn't say, you elect these men, we're taking the lead, you give us input as to who fits these qualifications, and then we will choose these men, and we will appoint seven of them over this business of serving tables, of doing this physical job as deacons. That is not voting. That's hypocrisy to try to call that voting. That's ridiculous. Don't let people fool you with that kind of reasoning. I just tell you, brethren, from one end of the Bible, you never find that at all. Never, never, ever. That's not in there. So God never had that as part of his, his Bible, part of this book, which is the mind of God. He always had it by appointment from those in charge based on the fruits of the individuals and undoubtedly many times with input and, and counsel and prayer and so forth. Prayer and fasting they did before they ordained people. So God's government could be a great blessing in serving the church and keeping the people together, creating unity, and in keeping the, sh the wolves away. Turn to Exodus chapter 18 now. We go back and see the early beginnings of it. And I've read you this before, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But Exodus chapter 18, Exodus chapter 18 talks about Moses' father-in-law, who'd had his own little nation or tribal group he was in charge of. And it says on, the, uh, on Exodus 18, 13, he was visiting Moses, and Moses sat to judge the people. He was the one God had appointed by miracles. There's no voting. God chose him and used him. And the people stood before Moses from morning to day, great big long lines waiting to see Moses. They were all getting worn out. And he says to his father-in-law, when they have a difficulty, they come to me. Verse 16, and I judge between one and another and I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. I explain these things to them and no doubt made decisions about the problems they had based on that principle. So Moses said, the thing you do is not good. You'll wear yourself out of these peoples. He told them what to do. He said, you shall teach them, verse 20, the statutes and judgments. Go ahead and teach them the way they should go. Moreover, you shall select, you shall select, you shall appoint, you shall choose. No voting, you, Moses, no doubt with counsel, select, choose, appoint, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, hundreds, and fifties. And the goal, the, the, story goes on as you read it here Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law did that and the whole passage showed that God guided that and God blessed that and that's the way it was from there on it was by appointment from the leadership never from voting never from voting turn now if you would to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 1 Deuteronomy chapter 1 at this point and let's begin in verse 11 God, Moses was telling the people here what to do as they were getting ready to come into the promised land. He said, Deuteronomy 1.11, May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he promised you. 
How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? I can't solve all your problems. There are too many of you. Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I, not you. So he says, I want input. I want advice. I want a series of names, and I'm going to talk to a lot of you, no doubt, which he did, just like I would do if I were the local pastor at appointing deacons. I'd get a whole group of people in mind and from the other members of the church as to who would be the best deacon, who would serve the most, who would have the most wisdom, who they respected the most. Then I would have to ask God's wisdom as to which one to choose of the leading candidates they would put forth. I will choose, you see. So he says, I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, Verse 16, and I commanded your judges saying, here are the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother. Farmer, Farmer Jones' cows wander over into Farmer Smith's vegetable garden. What do they do? Rather than fight it out, they can't dissolve it, they go to the ministry. And the minister has to help them do it fairly based on God's law. He is to be the leader as it was back at that time. You shall not show partiality in judgment. Don't favor him who has more money or acts more important or acts more tough. You are acting for God. Do it in the fear of God. Do it fairly. Do it wisely. You shall hear the small as well as the great. And you shall not be afraid in any man's presence. For the judgment is God's. God will guide the judgment. You are acting for God in this. It's God's government in action. The case that is too hard, bring it to me. Then I will have to judge. Well, that's what we used to do with Mr. Armstrong. And that's what we do today. They bring it right up sometimes to me, or sometimes I'll bring it right up. Of course, if it's difficult or complicated to our whole uh, Tuesday noon executive lunch with many of the top ministers there, Every week, or if it's a major issue, we'll bring it clear to the Council of Elders. And we get much advice. In the end, I make the decision based on their input. We get multitude of counsel, and the whole Council of Elders helps decide it. And it's decided that way, not by voting, not by politicking, but by a leader getting advice from other leading men and women about what to do about a situation. And that was God's pattern all the way through. Turn to Second Chronicles now, if you would, brethren. Second Chronicles, and uh, something, again, I've given you a number of times, but it talks about this great leader of Judah, Jehoshaphat, and how he was serving God and prepared his heart to seek God. Verse 3, so Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again to the people, brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers, then, verse 5, he said, Judges of the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to these judges, he appointed these judges, Take heed to what you're doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the ever-living one who is to be with you in the judgment. He was inspired by God, a righteous king, and God puts that in the Bible these things are written for our admonition, it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. They're lessons for us today. They're part of the mind of God. If God himself, no doubt in the person of Jesus Christ back here, the head of Israel, 
the Lord God of Israel, the rock of Israel, he was going to guide them in that. If he guided them in that then, these were carnal men who didn't have God's spirit. God's spirit may have been with Moses or some of the leaders, but most of the others did not have God's spirit. But God's spirit was sometimes with them in making judgments. He was with them when they gave the artisans the ability to make beautiful things for the temple of God. Very clever, great deal of cleverness and ability to do physical things. He guided them in that situation. He said, God will be with you in the judgment. God will guide you in the judgment. It's God's government and God is in charge. Do you believe that? That's what the Bible says. Again, that comes back to faith, doesn't it? Do you believe there is a real God? You believe this Bible really means what God says and God says what he means? Then you have to have faith and act on that faith. Faith without works is dead. You believe that God will guide his church. Sometimes he lets human beings go off a little bit like he lets us humanly go off a little bit even when we're converted. We'll make mistakes for a while and then he'll jerk us up and we'll learn lessons from it. I know when I was sent to Hawaii in exile at one point, I had to pray to God and literally fasted twice a week for a while asking God to deliver me. And about two or three weeks after I started that constant prayer and fasting, I'd already been studying and fasting a lot, but I intensified it. Within about two or two and a half weeks, a special, uh, I forget all the names of it, notarized, uh, uh, he had to sign on it, special delivery letter, return receipt requested, was sent me for Mr. Herbert Armstrong. He was kind of in his exile because of his heart trouble and other men were taking advantage of him and telling him lies. He sent it to me from Tucson telling me to go back to Pasadena and he appointed me to teach certain classes including the finishing class of the, of the, men, of the young people before they went into the field. The doctrines of the worldwide church of God. He said, I have confidence that you will teach the right thing. And he brought me back and very soon after that put me back on the Council of Elders. Mr. Armstrong knew that something was up. God revealed to him what was happening. Then he brought me back without even letting them know. I was back on campus before they could stop it. Before they could go to him and try to argue with him. He brought me back and I was there before they even knew about it. Several times in my life, brethren, God has rescued me even when it looked like a judgment was wrong for a while. And God allowed me to have a time out there to study, to pray, to examine myself. Was that bad? No, I learned certain lessons. I learned to trust in God no matter what. And sometimes you will have to learn to trust in God no matter what. But in the end, God will deliver you. I've seen several times without naming names where some of these men that did that then and others were wishing that I was kicked out of the church or I was dead. They're all dead. I'm not rejoicing that. I'm just saying that God took care of it. It's kind of interesting how those things work. He that digs a pit will fall into it. So if you're taken advantage of, if you put your faith and trust in God and you feel you've been wrong, cry it out to God, fast and pray, and God will turn it around. But in the meantime, you should try to learn every single lesson you can if you're corrected by the ministry. And I did do that. I said, God, show me whatever. I prayed and beseeched God to help me do better. And I came back and I did do better. Not that I'd ever been turned on Mr. Armstrong, never been disloyal. I could just tell you that. 
period. But I had been too pushy and maybe talked too much in certain ways, and I was more careful. And God helped me learn lessons from that. And it was those lessons that still blazed in my brain. It was good for me. It was good for everyone concerned. But God turned it around. They didn't turn it around. God turned it around in a way that those men could never have foreseen. He will take care of it. God will guide you in the judgment. And if God allows a human or a group of humans to make a wrong decision, Christ is the head of the church. He will turn it around. He will cause it to work out good. You may have to be patient for a while. Now, if you think the church is wrong and you're right, be very careful. Very careful because you, the church, is right and you're wrong. And I knew that. That's one reason I took it very seriously when I was sent to Hawaii. I knew that I hadn't done anything horrible, but I needed to examine myself in case there's something that I had done that I didn't realize. And that's the way you should sincerely learn whatever lesson God wants you to learn, but put your faith in Christ. Christ is the living head of the church. He has delivered me again and again and again and again. And I'm not exaggerating. I could go back to my student days and things that happened, how God would turn things right around. It's amazing. I've seen things like that happen for 66 years almost since I came to Ambassador College 66 years ago next month. Christ is in charge. Christ is alive. He will take care of it. Your, your faith, it teaches you faith in Christ to believe in the right form of church government and carry it out. And then in that way, you learn lessons for all eternity. So he says, you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. Now, therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Jehoshaphat told these judges at that time, take care and do it. For there is no iniquity with the eternal our God no partiality or taking bribes. You must not do that kind of thing in judgment. We're to learn that righteous judgment today and put our faith and trust in God that he will guide it. We have brethren right now, and my word doesn't prove it to you. One thing I'm grateful, we have a lot of very human people in the work, but at least the leading ministers overall have been the most dedicated, the most solid, the most loyal men closest to God that I've ever experienced since the earliest days of the church when just Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong were the father figure and mother figure. Pretty quick after that, human nature came in and people were playing games. Not horrible, I'm just saying we had a lot of very obvious. Now, so many of the men like Mr. Ames and Dr. Nail and Mr. Gerald Weston and others have been tested and tried and tried and tested and they have been walking with God. They've been put through the mill, so to speak. And you have a group of men, if anything happens to me, that have been tried and tested for decades, decades in the way of God. Will they make mistakes? Yes. Did Mr. Armstrong ever make mistakes? Of course he did. He said many times, he said, Herbert Armstrong has made hundreds of mistakes. They said, God has never allowed me to make a huge mistake to destroy the work. So he'll let us make little mistakes, but not huge mistakes. And then he'll straighten it out in his time. But the overall pattern of God's government produces good fruit. It keeps the church together. It keeps the wolves from sneaking in to divide God's people. And it gives us the experience of doing it the way God wants us to forever in God's kingdom. We'll learn how to do it the right way. We're doing it by doing it that way right now. You learn to swim by swimming. 
you don't learn to swim by reading books about swimming. That's one reason when I had to take over the speech class way back when, I realized very quickly from my own experience in the spokesman club, the ambassador club, I should say, that you learn to speak by speaking. I had had several speech classes too myself before that. That's the reason Mr. Armstrong let me do that for a while. I wasn't ready for it. I just he thrown at me. But I didn't have them read books about making speeches. I had them give up and get up in speech. And I gave them lectures on how to give speeches. And then the, they would evaluate them. So you learn to speak by speaking. You don't learn to write it by reading books. It's okay to have a textbook. But the main thing is to speak. If you're going to swim, you better get in the pool and swim. Not learn to read books about it. But at any rate, you learn God's government by practicing that government. Putting that government in action. And that is very, very important. A key thing, notice, brethren, back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel here in your Old Testament and chapter 8. When Samuel was old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of the firstborn was Joel and then Abijah. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So what's the answer? What do you do if some of the minister's children are not perfect? Do you leave the church? Do you throw out the whole government of God because of that? No, you don't do that. You don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. But they did. They didn't like these sons who took bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. Look, you are old, verse 5. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king and judge us like the nations. They wanted not just a certain correction of a problem. They wanted to destroy the entire concept of trusting directly in God to rule them. They wanted to set up a king who would be kind of an independent leader. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king. So Samuel prayed. He was very close to God overall, but he was getting old. He didn't fully understand what his sons were doing. He cried out to God. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me in turning to a whole different form of government that was not God's government directly trusting in God. They have rejected me that I should not reign over them. And brethren, Israel began to have trouble after trouble from then on, as you read on through the rest of the Old Testament. Wars, upsets, rebellions, because they did not trust in God as they should. God had mercy. He would give them good kings most of the time, but not all the time. And some of their bad teams were awful, because they had turned aside from trusting in God the way they should have done. So this is a lesson here. Don't reject God's government just because you see problems in the government. That was one of the biggest mistakes any group of humans ever made. If they had trusted in God to lead them, they would have had far fewer wars. God would have directly fought their battles and thousands of their men would never have died. He would have delivered them again and again and blessed them and blessed them far more than he did. But they did not do that and they did not trust in God's government. So we've got to learn to trust in God's government when you see that is the mind of God. Notice now back in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. Let's go back to the book of Colossians again. Chapter 1 
and we'll read again where we were here. It says in Colossians 1, 18, talking about Christ, in verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. That's Jesus Christ. He, Christ, is the head of the body, soma. The same word lives over in the next chapter, the, the church. So the body is the church. Christ is the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he was the firstborn from the dead. No one had ever been born like that before, born to the very kingdom of God by being born from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. So Christ is the head of the church. Then if you want to turn back also here to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, brethren, and uh, I want to read this to you that I often read to you, talking about Christ in verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the work of his mighty power, breaking into one of Paul's long sentences, which he worked in Christ, God's power, when God raised him, Christ, from the dead, and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, and gave him, Christ, a name that is above every name, that is named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. And he put all things under his, Christ's feet. God has put everything under Christ's feet and gave him to be the head. Who's the head of the church? Not me. I'm the human instrument under Christ with wonderful help and advice from Mr. Ames and Dr. Nail and Mr. Weston, as you know, we've lined up to come along if something happened to Mr. Ames and me. And he's doing very, very well. And other leaders we have here. I better not mention more, and then I'll leave someone out. <laughs> I'll just mention the main three at this point. But Christ is put all things, God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him, Christ, to be the head over all things. He's the living head, not the dead head. He's alive. He's at God's right hand in heaven. He moves, he acts, he leads over all things of the church. He's over church administration through Dr. Winnell. He's over the business office for Mr. Wakefield. He's over the feast site planning and, and uh, the, the fleet plan and other things through my son Jim. He's over these other various areas all through the church of God. He guides it over all. Gave him to be the head over all things of the church, which is his body. It's Christ's body. We are Christ's body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So we have to really understand that and know that Christ is alive and it's his church and he is in charge in the end. And he will certainly intervene when he has to. Now let's notice over in chapter 4 here. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to, uh, I'd like to read all this earlier part. But let's go down to verse 11. He, Christ, himself gave some to be apostles. Christ set offices in the church. Should we have offices? Christ set them. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. I've had two or three men who were my students who were never outstanding students or leaders in the college at all, and I mean that. 
They just suddenly go from zero to 90 miles an hour. They suddenly appoint themselves prophets or apostles. Well, they're not apostles or prophets in my opinion at all. I don't mean to make fun of them, but they're just not. They don't have the fruits of it or anything else. They've made themselves that. Am I an apostle? No, I've never claimed that at all. If God wants me to be an apostle, he'll cause the work to grow a lot more powerful and he will intervene by miracles and signs, unusual miracles and signs. Then he can show if he wants to, but he's not chosen to do that. It's not my job to make myself something I wasn't given. I was made by God's apostle and evangelist directly ordained by Mr. Herbert Armstrong, whom the fruits show that he was an apostle. Because after I came to college and before I came to college, I saw it even more while I was there. He built an extremely powerful work, and God did give him and the whole ministry unusual miracles over and over and over again. They were undeniable. He had the signs of an apostle. He was able to raise up and to lead the whole Philadelphia era of the Church of God. I'm just carrying on some of it today, but I'm not in that in his status at all. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. So that's what I was ordained at, an evangelist, and some pastors and teachers. I know that we had one of the leaders of the other groups with us a few years ago, and I think it was Mr. Ames or Dr. Nail across the table, and he said, well, George, his name was not George. He said, we recognize you as an evangelist. Does your own church recognize you as an evangelist? Of course, we knew that they don't even have any offices. They don't recognize the ranks that are given here. They don't recognize that God himself had prophets, apostles, evangelists, and teachers. He kind of looked at the table. He felt embarrassed. He said, no, his own church did not recognize him that, even though he had been ordained by Mr. Armstrong and given that title. His own church didn't. They don't recognize God's ranks that God himself put in the ministry. They don't understand the right approach to church government. They don't get it. They think, well, who cares? It's a small thing. It is not a small thing. My brethren, please understand that. Don't let these people from other groups say it's no big deal. We're all the same. We are not all the same. The big message we're preaching is the coming kingdom of God, which means government of God. And they are not part of that government. And they are not trying to teach their people the right approach to that government. They're weak. But if they don't repent and wake up, you read Revelation 3 about the Laodiceans. They're going to be in for an awful lot of trouble. I'd much rather do things God's way. Much rather do things God's way and follow the kind of government that he described in his own inspired words and follow that and trust that God will guide us in doing that if we do it according to his word. We're going to have a higher reward for all eternity in the kingdom of God. If we teach the kingdom of God, the government of God, in the right way, based on God's inspired word, it's not a little thing. The biggest thing we do, and that mentions over all through the New Testament, we preach the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the government of God. What if we don't even practice what we're preaching? That's bad. That is not good. So we're trying to do it God's way. So these offices of evangelists, pastors, and teachers are put there by God for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry to carry out God's work, for the edifying, the building up, the strengthening of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith. 
Yes, the true government of God produces unity. If each one sounds off and there's no minister there, the shepherd, a strong shepherd with authority to say, no, this is the right way, walk in it. And people start arguing, little churches come apart. We need a government. Mr. Armstrong found that. He'd raise up churches over in Yuma Pine and, and all these little places around Oregon there he used to talk about. He'd start these Bible study groups or churches. They come apart. Why? The brethren all start arguing with each other. There's no leader. He had to have college-trained leaders who were respected by the people to help them. Then we began to have growth. Finally, after several of us graduated from Ambassador College and began to have uh, the ministry and built churches, then the work grew. And many of you have read Mr. Armstrong's autobiography. How many of you have read Mr. Armstrong's autobiography? Raise your hands if you would. Well, it looks like a good number of you. A lot of you are older. Some of you young people may never have seen it. Get it. Read it. Read especially volume one. He mentions me four, five, six times in volume two, and I'm glad of that. I get an honorable mention. But volume one is more important. It describes the basic way God used him to raise up the church and what happened. And over and over he describes how these churches came apart, came apart without a leader. And when I came to Ambassador College in September 1949, we had three churches. Portland with about 20 people, Eugene, Oregon with about 25 or 30, and Pasadena with about 40 or 50. That was it. No other churches east of the Rocky Mountains. Zero. When I graduated from Ambassador College three years later, go look it up, and other literature will prove this to you if you don't believe me. Three years later, I graduated. How many churches had we grown in? Zero. We still had three churches. Had those churches grown in attendance? Virtually nothing in growth in Portland or Eugene. The Pasadena church grew because we had the college there and began to hire more people. So then we had maybe 75 or 100 by the time I graduated. But very little growth. Then more ministers came out and you had shepherds. And those shepherds were taught to be loyal to the government of God. And those shepherds did not argue. They didn't fuss. If Mr. Armstrong said something we disagreed with, we were able to bring it to him, which I did many times. I know Mr. Armstrong said one time in the ministry, I wish Mr. Partied were here to verify these things because he was there at some of these meetings. Now it's getting to the point that everyone else is dead. But anyway, he said, if I did, I changed the, the Sabbath or the Holy Days. He said, people tend to have a want to follow a leader and I'm a strong leader strong personality would you all just follow me and he looked around and he and then he said the second time would you like he wanted an answer so I said I wouldn't he said I know you wouldn't Roddy practically jumped out of his shoes he knew that he knew that no I wouldn't follow him automatically but I did come to him perhaps more than anyone else if I thought he was doing something wrong and warn him about it in love and he would take it about 90% of the time. He would take it, act on it. Or if I was wrong, sometimes he'd point that out. And then I would take it. Very seldom did it go any other way. Because we were both sincere. We were both converted. God's government works. If you start churches, you need a converted, dedicated ministry that's loyal. You need people that are loyal. You need people that will look to those over them in authority that are part of a team will respond to the one over them and that team to build a sense of unity. Without that kind of teamwork, that kind of unity, you have confusion. First Corinthians 14, 33. 
1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not the author of confusion. The word confusion means Babylon. That's the very word that's translated Babylon in the Old Testament. It means the same thing. Confusion, Babylon. We're not to come out of, we're not to be in Babylon. We're to come out of Babylon. So you have to really understand those things, brethren. So God does have these offices in the church and we're to appreciate that and look to those offices and they're put there until we all are edified and going back to Ephesians 4 now verse 13 till we all come into the unity of the faith we have unity and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ we're to grow to be like Christ by the way I hear that some of the people in these other churches and one of our men was telling me the other day at lunch I don't know which church he meant but one of these splits says that well church government would cut me off from my direct relationship with God. What? It does not cut you off. It helps you know to do better if you have a minister that teaches you and you could challenge him if he's wrong, you could discuss it. But if you have the right kind of leader, you are closer to God. You still study the Bible on your own. You still pray to God directly. You don't go to the minister. But if you have a shepherd to keep the bad guys away, to keep the church from splitting, you are closer to God. You see Christ working through his body. You see Christ working through his team, that he's preparing a team to rule this whole world in a few years. And he wants people to be responsive in that team, to be part of his spiritual army, to say, yes, sir, if it's not wrong, if it doesn't directly contradict God's law, then say, yes, sir, go do it. And trust Christ to take care of it. You're part of a team. So we're to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We want the stature of the fullness of Christ. We get that way through these leaders in the church. That's just what he's talking about. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Some new person comes along very charismatic and clever says, Well, we've got to figure a different way to count the calendar. Well, we've got to figure a different way to speak in sacred names. Well, we've got to have a different way to figure the Passover, the Pentecost. No, you go back to the teamwork, the ones that already approved these things, and check it and have multitude of counsel and get it straight. So you're not tossed through and through every some new idea comes along with some, no, some old wrong idea they come up with again. Carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, we're not doing it to hate. We're to love you, we ministers. We're to lay down our lives for you. We're to build you, help you, serve you, cry out to God to help us, help you grow. And I want to do that. I know Mr. Ames does deeply to help all of you grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what we want. That you could grow like Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Everyone has a part according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. But it's not done in a disorderly, confused way. It's done in an orderly, organized way within the government of God where the leaders are chosen from the top down and they're done the way God Almighty brought out very clearly in the Bible again and again and again and again. You notice back here in the book of Acts, brethren, turn with me in the book of Acts to chapter 14. 
this one I don't have marked, but let's see if we could get back there. Acts chapter 14. Here's the apostle Paul and Timothy. After they'd been stoned, Paul had been stoned. In verse 19 here, the people stoned Paul, supposed to be dead. They left him as dead. He was either dead or almost dead. What happened? Did Paul give up? No, he got right up and went right back through those same cities. And when he preached the gospel and made many more disciples, verse 21, they returned again. They came right back to Lystra where he got these rocks hurled at his head. Right back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. There's faith involved here. You trust in God. And saying, we must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. If they saw those scars all over his head, and maybe his head was still swollen, they, they knew, yes, we go through tribulations. Paul had to go through this, and here he is. We must through many tribulations. So, verse 23, what did they do? And when they went back through these cities and found people still faithful, they appointed. They didn't have an election. Let Joe get up on his old backs and John and Jack and have different ones make speeches and see who's the most popular. They appointed. They appointed elders. Government from the top down always. They appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting. We've gone through that before, but that's part of the ordination. The ministers are charged to pray and fast and ask God's guidance. That's what they did, and that's what we should do, and that's what we do do in the church of God, in the living church of God. In Titus, go back to the book of Titus, just after First and Second Timothy comes Titus. Titus chapter 1. He says in verse 5, For this reason, he tells Titus, I left you in Crete, that big Mediterranean island, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders. What? Titus wasn't even an even apostle. No, he was an evangelist. So Mr. Armstrong had me appoint elders, had me do various things, even though I was just an evangelist. It doesn't have to be an apostle. He said I, that you, you were to appoint elders. He told him, government from the top down, I'm telling you, and you appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Yes, it was voting. I commanded you. I told you this. Then he gives the, the, the qualifications for an elder. And certainly Titus had to heed that and think about doing it the right way. But he had the authority to do that. And it says down in verse 10, he said, For many are insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped. If you're going to ordain an elder, a young man is an elder, make sure he has enough dedication that is enough strength of personality that he's able to dominate the situation and stop the mouths. Not wrong. Stop their mouths when they come in trying to say, well, you know, Mr. Meredith's not perfect and Mr. Ames is not perfect and blah, blah, blah. I found some problems over here and there. He may have to stop their mouths. And that's what the Apostle Paul told Timothy to be sure of. So we've all got to understand that principle. Then we find back here in First. uh Timothy 5, 1 Corinthians 5, I mean. <clears throat> Let's go back to 1 Corinthians, and in this case, chapter 5. We went to chapter 6 before, and in chapter 5, he covered a, 
number of things about the sexual immorality that was there. And he said, I'm going to have to make a decision for I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present concerning him who's done this deed, a man living with his stepmother. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the authority of Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Put him out. Deliver him to Satan. Your glory is not good. Don't you know the little leaven leavens the whole lump? It spreads. If you leave sin right in the midst, it tends to spread. Purge out the old leaven, he tells them. And he says down here in uh, verse 13, those who are outside, God judges. We don't try to judge the outside world now, but we're learning to practice God's government in the church. Put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So you're to put away someone who causes immorality to spread or someone who causes, of course, division to spread and whose mouth must be stopped. Turning back now to chapter to Romans, if you would, Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. He said in verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, mark, as the King James has it, or note those who cause divisions. If people come sneaking in and try to cause divisions, note them, mark them, tell the brethren about them. And offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned and avoid them. How do you avoid them? If someone comes in here and is whispering against us, so on, do we all leave the hall so we can avoid them? No, we were paying for this hall. We have them avoid. We, we avoid them by putting them out, as all the rest of the New Testament tells you. We have to do that on occasion. And that's good for them because it helps them realize they can't do that. Is God going to leave those people around in his kingdom? No, he's going to probably bring down fire from heaven on them. They're going to have to learn, don't do that. Don't try to cause division in the very true church of the living God. Don't do that. And they learn to learn that. There's authority there. And then you turn back to Hebrews, if you would. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I'm kind of hurrying here. I wish we, sometimes I wish we had the old service, but you wouldn't like it, I know. Our service used to be three hours, and the sermon could be two hours or two hours and 20 minutes straight through. Then we could really explain everything. But anyway, back here in chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 7. Remember those who rule over you. So he's not talking about Caesar's government, obviously the leaders in the church. Rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you. In other words, the ministers whose faith follow, follow our faith, follow our approach to God, although considering the outcome of their conduct. Watch his conduct if it's something really bad. Remember, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're following the basic things he taught all the way on church government. Verse 13 now, or verse 17. Paul says again, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. We're trying to help you get in God's kingdom. We're trying to help you prepare yourself to be part of the team, part of the team that Jesus Christ is going to use as those who must give account. Let, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. 
Yes, it's better to back up the ministry, encourage the ministry, pray for the ministry. If something is serious, bring it to us. We're not dictators. We're here to serve you and want to. But we're here to make decisions when we have to. We're here to make decisions about problems in the church, about wolves coming in, causing division, about people who come in with false doctrine. Whatever has to be done, the minister is in charge, supposed to be, and God demands that we do those things. That's his pattern all the way through. That keeps his church together. That keeps his church on track. That keeps the church growing, the work growing, and prepares us to be part of that very kind of government throughout all eternity. So we're learning that government now that will soon be administering that government in tomorrow's world. God help us understand and respond and love to do it. Appreciate learning those lessons and do it God's way. And know that God is pleased if we do it God's way.